You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, somebody I've been excited to talk to because his coverage of the military is nothing short of outstanding. We'll get to him in just a moment. Just a few reminders. Before we get started, as always, continue to leave us Apple ratings and reviews. Wherever you get your Apple podcasts, leave us a rating and review. We're continuing to grow. Want to crack the top 100 Apple podcasts? Can only do that with your reviews. Doesn't have to be a lengthy review. But wherever you get your Apple podcasts, you can do it on your smartphone as well. Five stars, short review. Tell us why you love the show. We'll post them on social media, and we appreciate all the support of the show continually. Speaking of social media, follow us on every platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. And of course, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll direct you right to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend. And of course, we donate a percentage of that back right to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Also really easy from your smartphone. Go to hazardground.com on your, hazardground.com on your smartphone and it'll redirect you right to the app. So all your credit card information is saved, really simple and convenient and an easy way for you to help out veterans all across America right from your smartphone. Joining us this week is a 13-year member of the Army National Guard, currently holds the rank of E6. He has been a Cav Scout and deployed to Afghanistan. What's interesting about his career is while doing all of this, he has managed to become an individual who covers the military at length, currently as a ground combat reporter for military.com. He's covered Capitol Hill and the Department of VA for Stars and Stripes, also worked for Political, the Washington Examiner, National Guard Magazine, and Military Times. He is Steve Bainan joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Steve, welcome, and thank you for being here. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, you and I have... Gone back and forth on Twitter several times, as I've told people, military Twitter is a fun and exciting and interesting place, but <laughs> yeah. it can be a little bit, uh, uh, you know, insular at times, but it mm-hmm. is a, a great way to start some great conversations. That's how you and I met, but it, it all full disclosure, again, um, your work is outstanding. It's, it is right down the middle of the road. It's objective. It's smart. Uh, it gets right to the point, cuts through a lot of the fluff. And I think when it comes to these complicated times for the military, it's voices like yours in the space where veterans are reading it on an outlet like military.com that is so needed. So again, thank you for all your dedication uh, and your hard work and your craft. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. So with that out of the way, we'll get to how you got there to begin with, but let's start back at the beginning and how and why you got into the army. Yeah. So I enlisted in the uh, Ohio national guard in 2008. And uh, I wish I had a, uh, a super patriotic story behind it, but uh, I was kind of juggling this. uh, I want to be in the military. I want to go to war. I want to see what it is. Um, But I wasn't really willing to sacrifice things I wanted to do in the civilian life. And I didn't know about the national guard uh, really at the time until a recruiter came into my math class and told us about it. And uh, it seemed like uh, best of both worlds thing. I, I, I get to go to war. I get to go to college. I get to build my career all at the same time. And I swear I'm not a recruiter. There's a lot of uh, reasons to not join the national guard or the, or the military as a whole. But for me in that specific case, and this is 
like peak recession right now. Um, so the, the economy is really in question. And I, and I also looked at it as a uh, backup career. And uh, I don't come from a family with means and I wasn't willing to get any student debt or anything. So, uh, hey, they said, hey, go to war. We'll pay for your school and you'll you'll get a paycheck. And uh, me at 17 with parents permission, it sounded like uh, a no brainer. Parents permission. So, again, yeah. two wars are raging at this time. Mm-hmm. They said, hey, Steve, best of luck. Love you. See you soon. Uh, so and this is the uh, I, I like to think that I'm a I'm an honest gentleman 99.99% of the time but uh I did um I wasn't completely honest with my mother the job I was enlisting as um I I I, uh because we were talking about me being in an an MP or something and I found out what that really wasn't meant it it didn't really appeal to me and I found out about uh calf scouts and that sounded really cool but it sounds really dangerous and I don't want uh mother googling it and and seeing what that's all about um so I just said yeah it's still an MP don't yeah just sign right here so you lied (laughs) yeah I'm not yeah I'll 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 say that to you right now uh but uh I I was excited to get in and uh I I didn't want to I didn't want to wait at what point did mom find out the truth? Uh, right after she signed it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> how did that conversation? Yeah, right, right. Uh, she was uh, a little upset. It was, but it wasn't. It was an anger thing. It was. It was. It was more of a you know shake the head. But uh, hey, all right, you, you did. You did what you had to do, and you, you got what you wanted. Uh, just uh, don't don't get killed out there. Now, full disclosure: uh, Did you sign up for the National Guard knowing one day you'd ask to be a bus driver? No, I did not. I no, that was not. So that that's a bigger conversation. These domestic, I know. Well, yeah, yeah. Stuff, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll get the to viewers that. watching. Steve <laughs> yeah. and I have gone back and forth, and, and I have said this yeah. often. If you follow me on social media, the, the National Guard now is being used by certain governors because there's a shortage of bus drivers who take kids to school every day, which is, I'll say it bluntly, a far overreach by governors and adjutant generals to employ the National Guard in that manner because literally, it's not our job. Uh, your taxes pay the government funds to be able to get through situations like this, not deploy the National Guard because they're a convenient toy for governors and adjunct generals to have. So that's why I asked Steve that question. He was sort of an inside joke that we had to pull the curtains back on. Yeah, right. no, I, I did not. I did not. Answer. I thought I was going to go fight wars. And then yeah. maybe once in a while, I'll go uh, pick up trees out of the road after a hurricane. Yeah. And then and the wheels on the bus go round and round. Uh, yeah. Everybody on the bus. Good. Great. Grand. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you sign up right off to basic training mm-hmm. um, because you didn't have much of any military experience and didn't really have a lot of wherewithal. Was basic training a surprise? Yeah, I never shot a gun up until basic training. Uh, I never had a there's no military background in my family. My, my uh, grandpa was in the British Navy uh, year, years ago during World War Two, um, but I never really got to meet him or, or hear about it. So I never. I didn't grow up with that. Uh, I was the first one in my school to think that the military is an idea. Um, and I think it was more of an impulse. Uh, like I said, I, you know, I broke down the reasons to go in. Um, and that sounds like a long thinking process, but I really think like looking back on it, I think it was maybe like a three day process of me thinking about it, just pulling the trigger on it. Uh, but absolutely no, no military background there. There wasn't, this is before YouTube or anything. There wasn't a lot of, uh, videos of shark attacks there, there wasn't a lot of information out there i didn't know what a ruck march was uh so i i knew it was going to be tough i knew it was going to be screamed at uh but i had no center of gravity of what it looked like and the specifics of what it was going to be 
do you think in retrospect that helped you not, you know, are you the type of person if knowing what you were getting into ahead of time might've deterred you? Is it just one of those things where the suck was easier when you didn't know it was the suck? Yeah. So I think there, this is an interesting thing I've always wanted to look at is since, uh, you kind of think about something like, I mean, obviously basic training is nowhere near this. So you think about something like the Q course or buds, there's no shortage of information on that, but I would love to see numbers of an alternate universe where there's no information on, on like buds or any special operations course of the people that go in with no information. And then how many people go in with all the information? I, I would always be curious to see how much that psychs people out. Believe it or not, it's a question I often ask a lot of Green Berets and Navy mm-hmm. SEALs who come on the show. We have a little bit of a uh, of background on it. Um, mm-hmm. And and really, I think it just varies from individual to individual. Some guys yeah. are okay with not knowing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people take the approach, all I knew was that it was going to suck. And if I could just survive to the end of the day, I'd worry about the next day next. So yeah. they just looked at it sort of in segments that way. Whatever was going on, the suck was eventually yeah. going to stop in a 24-hour period to restart again. And that's the yeah. mentality they approached it with. Other people were were hordes for information, you know, like they, yeah. they the more you could give them, the better they could absorb it and 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 adjust. I think really it just varies from person to person on yeah. how they handle it. Um yeah. I, I love doing cool guy stuff. I, I I love the the suck, but at the level of the the cav unit or or infantry company suck. Um I don't know if I would have ever considered special operations in a world without things like surviving the cut. But I know when I saw uh, the episode of uh, Selection where the guy puts his puke in his uh, cargo pocket, I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm good here. I, I got my own suck. Uh, it's a level that I like. All right. Uh, so after basic training, right out to, uh, to Fort Knox for, for Cav school? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it was at it was at Fort Knox at the time. It's at it's at Fort Benning now. Um yeah, I was thinking it was God, I think it was like 16 weeks nonstop. Uh my my favorite drill sergeant stories are I had one that was wicked in combatives. Uh actually I'm I'm into jujitsu now. That's that's so I don't know if that let that led into that. Um but he would love to sneak up on us and just put us in rear neck and chokes. So I would be doing uh you know, I'd be mopping the floors at uh, two, two in the morning and he would just come up. I remember he came up on me once, choked me out. And then I woke up and he was walking away and he just looked at me and he just said, I just want you to know I could kill you whenever I wanted to. Um, <laughs> and this other, this other drill sergeant, when it was over his time to, cause they would take, uh, you know, there's different days where they had to stay all night and watch us. Uh, when it was his night, he would, uh, order a pizza and he would blare like Barbie girl and just, <laughs> and just smoke the dog shit out of us until he finishes pizza. And then he went to bed. Very nice. <laughs> um, is there any point during this whole experience where you're feeling like maybe this wasn't a good idea? Uh, no, no. I, I think, uh, which, which is strange. Cause I didn't grow up. I never played a sport or anything. I didn't have a lot of, uh, I had an athletic ability that was enough to not fall out. Uh, but definitely not, uh, you know, you know, standing above any, anyone else or anything. Um, I think it was more of just, there was a struggle, like, you know, I, everyone else, like everyone at the time, I, I had a girlfriend and, you know, you couldn't call home. This is before cell phones were really a big thing. And, uh, I, I mean, I went through the same stuff everyone else did. Uh, but I, I, I never had a, uh, a, I should I should quit moment um, more than anyone else did or, or anything like that. I didn't, I didn't have any regrets and, and thankfully stuff like uh, Cav Scout school and through school, it's, 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 it's really short. Thankfully. Yeah. 
So you have this desire to go to combat. How quickly mm-hmm. does that happen for you? So I get to my first unit in, in uh, 2009. I enlisted in 2008, but you have to wait a year to go to before they send you the basic training because you still technically need a high school diploma to go. Um, so I was doing this weird National Guard weekend stuff, but I didn't have a haircut yet. Uh, you just show up wearing whatever. And they, they show you what a compass looks like, uh, but you don't, you know, weird little stuff. Just, I mean, it was a paycheck, you know, it was like 150 bucks and that's a lot for a 17 year old. Um, But yeah, I get to my first unit as a cavalry unit in the Ohio guard. They were actually in Iraq when I showed up and uh, I just felt like the biggest asshole uh, being on, I mean, I couldn't control, but I'm on rear debt with like three other guys for most of my first year in the guard. I, I don't do any training um anything cool we're just kind of hanging out you you clean the armory and and nothing really happens and everyone comes back with uh you know combat patches uh combat action badges they had a very legitimate deployment um and you just kind of stand out and you and you sort of uh feel feel like a a jerk You, you have that uh combat fomo for sure when do you actually get to a position where you know you're going to combat this is in uh, this is the following year. I uh, I was frantically volunteering for deployments, thinking I would miss out on the wars. I I did. We were much younger back then, <laughs> thinking uh, I, I'd lose out on Afghanistan yeah. or, or Iraq, and there was no shortage of deployments. This is during uh, this is right around the time the Obama surge is happening. In Every, yeah. yeah, everyone's going somewhere. If you want deployment, it's going to happen. I volunteered for about like three or four different ones going on at the time. Um, they kept getting delayed or pushed. I wasn't picked. Um, I actually went to an internship in uh, San Francisco. And as soon as I got off the plane, um, I get a call from some, I don't know why, but I remember it was a Colonel calling me and he, and, uh, at the, you know, at the time, uh, he was like, uh, is this private Bain? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, Hey, you need to report to, uh, we were reporting out of uh, Medina, Ohio to go on the deployment. And I, to where I thought I was being punked or something. Like I thought it was one of my friends, like playing a joke on me. And I was like, what? And then I, and then in my head, I was like, dude, I've been begging to deploy for a year. And, and, uh, I just got on a flight to California for a couple months. You couldn't tell me beforehand. Uh, so I was a little peeved about that showed up at my internship and, uh, put in my two weeks notice (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, came home. Uh, I was very excited. Uh, I got to deploy with a lot of, uh, a lot of veteran, all the NCOs had, a lot of experience. Um, you know, my, my team leader was like an 80 set was a 82nd guy. Our platoon sergeant had a ton of guard experience. Uh, and then we, we were able to go to, uh, Helmand province, which is a very kinetic area. Um, and we were only, only army units that were there it was mo- it's mostly at the time is mostly Marines. And that's where a lot of the, uh, European, uh, forces were at. And, uh, I think uh, like a lot of young men, I, I was definitely full of, uh, Piss and vinegar. Piss and vinegar, and, yeah. And, yeah, right, and uh, ready to get after it. Quick question for you before we get into the deployment mm-hmm. itself. Uh, obviously, it's the National Guard. You mentioned yeah. it was an internship. What were you doing on the civilian side while you were in a drilling status for a year plus? Yeah, so I was just a college student. Um, God, I don't remember the job. Like, I had the internship. I had a lot of odd jobs. I, I worked at, like, a GameStop. Uh, I did mall security for a little bit. Uh, I, I worked at, like, a burrito place. It, it was a lot of... Uh, a lot of different odd jobs uh, at, at the time. Okay. All right. yeah. You didn't get any GameStop stock back then, did you? No, no. Okay. Big, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's the first Big thing mistake. I'm going to – that's the first thing I'm going to do when I get my time machine. 
<laughs> Go back and get to, just yeah. hang on to a couple hundred shares. Yeah. Hey, uh, take that twenty thousand dollar enlistment bonus. Don't buy a new couch. Get get the get. Just blow it all on GameStop. GameStop. Just eat, yeah, eat exactly. ramen noodles for a couple of years and deal with it. Uh, okay, <laughs> so you're headed to the Helmet Province. What do you know about your deployment prior to getting there, like mission set and things of that nature? I know absolutely nothing. Um, I did now. I I like to think of myself as a guy who reads up on things now, but at, at the time I'm I'm young. I think I'm. 19 i didn't read anything about afghanistan it's a place i wanted to go to but knew absolutely nothing about it was like just peak just young dumb guy um i knew i didn't know what provinces were you know they just say hellman and i was like I don't, yeah sure what's that a town i don't know um it i didn't know what the situation was i i didn't know anything our, our mission was uh, effectively to just uh do patrols around villages, down roads and stuff like that, PSD. It was generally just to have a presence uh, in, in this uh, crappy fob that was uh, a point of reference to people that are familiar. It was uh, maybe about 40 miles north of uh, Lashkargah. Okay. Yeah. And But you don't know how much you're going to be patrolling. If you're going to be patrolling, they didn't give you any, any sort of concept of that until you got the gr- on ground? Uh, no, no. I mean, uh, we, we did a lot of dismounted training and that's what a lot of it ended up, uh, like, but we, I, I remember during the train up, there wasn't a lot of thinking about Afghanistan. We trained out of camp Shelby, Mississippi. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> if anyone's not familiar with that, it is just this hot, humid, swampy Southern area. We're doing uh, battle drills in the woods. We're doing patrol bases. It, it's, it's, uh, I mean, the training was good. We got to do a lot of cool urban ops, uh, squad, platoon, life fires, uh, convoy stuff. But it, half the time, it felt like we were we were training for for Vietnam. There was no here's how a metal. I mean, like because you, you walk in a file and most patrols in Afghanistan, and there's uh, some metal detectors and stuff like that. They don't go over that because we're we're still uh, fanning out these huge distances in the woods, clearing areas and objectives and stuff like that, where in, in reality, you don't really, that's not how the game is played in Afghanistan in, in reality. No. Yeah. And again, I, I remember us going through some of the similar things in Iraq, uh, or at least the train up for it. You know, I mean, the closest thing we got to reality was mount training, um, yeah. you know, and working through doors and cities and, and mm-hmm. buildings like that was the closest thing we got um as far as the road stuff it was they were way out of their depth and this again is my first appointment was oh five mm-hmm. so you know training up to that they were way out of their depth from what we were what we were facing the gap between training and, yeah. and reality is always there uh the job is to try to close it as much as possible and, mm-hmm. and uh to a certain extent there's a certain level of success to it but you know you're never gonna be able to cover everything so yeah by the way, I, I- I think the convoy stuff was just a couple days in the truck. There was a, you know, like an IED lane, you yep. know, spot the IED. And I was like, is it that trash can duct tape to a propane tank in the middle of the road? And they're like, yeah, that's it. I'd be like, okay, I found it. Um, it wasn't very well. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, very well uh, thought out. No, not at all. No. Um, but what, by the way, what were your parents saying to you when you were raising your hand for all these deployments? Did they even know? No, let's go back to me not being a complete open book uh, okay. to them and stuff. I they, uh, they did not know at the time I volunteered for anything, and, okay. and neither did uh, at the time the uh, w- woman I was dating. And I, I'll, I will go back and say that is the wrong move. I was a younger man at the time and has since grown uh, <laughs> wiser and stuff. Uh, what did you say to them when you told them you were leaving or that you were getting deployed? 
I, I said, uh, I mean, yeah, I t- we, we went through the same conversation. I think a lot of people have, Hey, I'm going to Afghanistan. And, uh, I, I don't, it was a lot of, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't blame, you know, my mother for having a, a thousand questions. How do I, does your cell phone work? I don't know. Um, how, how do I call you? Can you email? And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. And that's, uh, I mean, it was definitely not harder for her than it was for me. And I think that's the hardest part for families is it's almost like, I don't know if the going's the bad part. It's the, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how to contact you. If something happens to you, there's this, just this vague thing of, oh, the Red Cross will call you. It's like, how does that work? There's just not a lot of information right. or anything like that. Full disclosure, uh, I had a similar story. I accidentally let it slip to my mother that I was deploying the second time. <laughs> so it was, you know, I was picked up the phone one day, a call. I was, I went out to lunch with a girl I was dating and, mm-hmm. you know, I had, I had told her a couple of days before that, Hey, look, I'm, I'm going to end up going back to Iraq. And mm-hmm. she was upset and, you know, you know, questioning our future, this, that, and the other. And I remember I had lunch with her and it didn't go well. Yeah. And I ended up picking up my phone, you know, my mother and I have a good relationship, but I just ended up calling her and started venting about, you know, this, that, and the other. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, I told her about that. I'm going to Iraq and, you know, blah, blah. blah. And my mother was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, oh shit! I didn't tell my mother yet. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. But see, now I don't know how to go the other way. There's a dichotomy where, like, so I was trying to go to Kabul recently, and mm-hmm. so like I told everyone, like, hey, I'm trying to do this. The odds are extremely low it's going to happen, but I just <laughs> want you to know that I'm trying. And they're just like, what do you mean you're trying to go to Kabul? I'm like, I want to go to Kabul, and, and yeah. you know, that's where all the action is. I'm a ground combat yeah. reporter. I need to be in ground combat. Yeah, it says it on my business card, so I need to, exactly. you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not living your business card, who are you? That's why yeah. mine just all around good guy, so I'm never not living it. So Yeah, so, so you know, and, you know, my fiance, uh, you know, rightfully gets a, little, gets a little pissed off. She's she's like, I can't believe you're trying to go. And I was like, don't worry, it probably won't work out. And then I follow it up with like, well, if that doesn't work out, I could probably get to Syria or something. She's like, that's not, no, that's not the that's answer better. to that. <laughs> it's not a fair trade-off. <laughs> you so, not going to Kabul isn't answered with, I'm going to Syria then. All right. You get back on ground uh, or you finally get on ground in Afghanistan. What is your day to day life like when you get there? Operational tempo, mission set, everything. Yeah, so it was interesting. I remember our first month there, we didn't do anything because our mission wasn't uh, like it wasn't like available or something like the FOB we were supposed to stay. at was still occupied. The unit didn't leave country yet. And so the mission overlap was weird. And they just put us in Camp Leatherneck for like three or four weeks. And we didn't do anything besides just zero weapons and we had to re get relicense on the vehicles for some reason. I don't know why. Um, so that was very strange. And then they just found a mission for us on base to do Overwatch while uh, the uh, the uh, the Danes trained the Afghan army um, on this uh, little base that was attached to Camp Leatherneck. And Camp Leatherneck's a large, a huge, massive base, or it wasn't in Afghanistan. It's probably at the time there was probably fifteen twenty thousand people there. Sounds um, like Camp Liberty in Iraq. Yeah, yeah, like uh, Prince Harry was actually uh, stationed at the base, uh, stapled to it. Uh, but then finally we got to where we were supposed to be. Um, and then, so the day-to-day, there, we probably ran missions two, three times a week. Um, and that would often involve mounted or dismounted patrols, uh, either to just have a presence um, or ran- we did random stuff like... Uh, 
I guess our fob was like this halfway point to this other fob and like stuff would get dropped off on ours and we would almost be like mailman that would go to this other fob that was another 20 miles down the road. I don't know why it couldn't get flown. I, I don't know why, but we did that once in a while. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just a lot of, uh, you know, key leader engagements, uh, st- stuff like that. Is any of this at this point in time, like disappointing to you? Like this isn't what I wanted to do when I said I want to go to combat. Well, it was very slow at first. Uh, and I almost had a reverse. I don't know if it was like a reverse guilt thing or something like that. Cause you like, you, you watch war movies and you got these like bright eyed kids and then, uh, then they go to war and it's just, it, it's uh, D day the first day they're there and they're like, Oh, this is bad. Like they just get, it's too much. And then I get there and it's like too little. Mm-hmm. Um, our first engagement was probably seven weeks, six, seven weeks in the deployment. Um, and I didn't even know we were engaged. Um, I just remember we took a knee um, set up. I was, I was carrying the 240 at the time and I just kind of set, set the bipod up. And I honestly, I think I, I think I thought the LT was doing a map check or radio check. I, I didn't know. I'm not, I'm not gonna, I didn't know what was going on. I was just a private just going, Oh, you know? Um, and then we get up and started going, started walking again. And then we get back to the fob and do a little AR. And then it was like, so y'all got shot at. And I was like, we did. I didn't, I didn't know. I, I you know, I didn't know. <laughs> so I was like, I didn't know. I, I thought there'd be more to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, similar story again, anecdotally, mm-hmm. uh, when we first got engaged, I remember I sent an email back to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just like, I had a group email that I sent all my friends and I just wrote in the subject line news dot, dot, dot. And I just wrote at the top, I got engaged, dot, dot, dot. And then I hit return <laughs> like 10 times in a row. And I went dot, dot, dot in combat. Got shot at today. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many people didn't read the bottom of the page because I got like three emails back from girls being like, hey, congratulations. I'm like, no, no, no. You kind of missed the whole point of the email. <laughs> yeah. uh, I did not get engaged while I was in Iraq. That would that would have yeah. sent more uh, shockwaves to, to mom than anything else. But nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like maybe two or three engagements later, it was a legitimate uh, gunfight. I got to return fire finally for the first time. Um, but I remember there's always a joke where like combat action badges and infantry badges are weird. And I remember they gave them to us like yeah. a couple days after our first engagement. I was like, is this stolen Valor? I don't, I don't even know I was getting shot at. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> uh, and I remember telling my team leader about it or something and he was like, Oh, don't worry. You'll earn it later. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's really, it's interesting because, you know, again, um, you know, I'm going through this whole VA process right now. Again, it's you know a pers- personal headache that I'm not going to share here on the on the podcast. But um, you know, they start asking questions about everything that you went through. And I'm like, you know, like there was a dozen times that I could have gotten a combat action badge. I only put it in once. Like, and I didn't even do it. The chain of command did it for us. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm like, there was a you know between getting blown up from an IED and everything like that alone should have qualified for combat. It never even got written down. Like really? it was just. No, well, because again, I was my first deployment. Um, I was attached to to Siege of Sodov. I was with Special Operations, and so they don't care. They're not, oh, yeah, not yeah. handing yeah. out awards they're, and, they're not about and that. everything else. Like I was nice enough that like the the last colonel that was there was like, "Hey, you guys, you know, need to get this," and he directed the S one to do it for us. Otherwise, it would have never happened. Like I didn't initiate it. I, yeah. Again, I'm like, sir, I'm like. It's kind of happened like a dozen times already. Like it's, I don't really think anybody's complaining about you, it. Yeah. See, so you got to get an admin unit, a mortar round lands, like a quarter of a click. <laughs> everybody's away listening then... in paperwork, paperwork, paperwork. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, that first engagement that you got into, um, that experience kind of sticks with you, obviously. Right. Yeah. Well, the first, yeah. The, well, so I mean the, the first real one you were talking the about. Fir- yeah. The first real one. So 
I'll never forget this, where the army has a lot of rules. And mind you, this is uh, Private Bainan's mindset. Um, and I definitely hesitated to shoot. And mind you, I got the 240, and I'm hesitating to shoot. And so my squad leader is understandably very pissed and screaming at me. And it was, and I was just looking at him, you know, like, what? You know, and he's like, we're getting shot at. I was like, yeah, I know. And he's like, well, we'll shoot back. And I was just like, am I allowed to do that? <laughs> like, it was so straight. Like, it's so, it sounds so stupid looking back on it. I'll be the first person to tell you that. And it's like such an embarrassing story. No, um, it's really not. Because, <laughs> I, okay, well, so was there a part of you that paused? Yeah. I mean, this is a topic we talk about a lot. Was there a part of you that paused because... Was there in some sense some subconscious thought that once I do this, mm-hmm. the world's different for me? I don't know if it was that deep. I think it was almost more like a, it's almost like the same mindset, right? Like, have you ever been on a range and you just don't want to be the first person that shoots in case you're just like wrong and it's not cool to shoot yet? And then you hear <laughs> another guy shoot and you're like, okay, cool, we can shoot now. It's like that. <laughs> it's Fair the, enough. It's the same thing. There was a couple sporadic rifle fire. And I was like, okay, you know, is my here's my sector. And then uh, I also did it. Some I was actually really surprised about is you don't see people you shoot at necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get PID, you see maybe some movements, some muzzle flashes, but you're really just kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, you're just kind of shooting at like maybe a patch of trees where you think they're at. And I was just, and I remember, I remember thinking, I was like, well, I don't like see anybody. And, and it, it, that was kind of a hard concept for me to be like, oh, you don't necessarily literally have a human being in, in your optics or anything like that. That just, that's just not really how it works. That's how I thought it would work, if that makes sense. No, I, I mean, again, it does. Yeah. I, I was one of the first, and again, my mind at least processed all this, what feels like. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of thoughts to put in a split second, but it mm-hmm. literally happened in a split second because I did the same thing. Is yeah. that a person or is that a shadow? What am I looking at? Yeah. And then, and again, because by the time one particular engagement I had had when I had fired for the first time, it was one of those things where I had seen other engagements happen from other people. And, you know, mm-hmm. you start to have conversations and I'm a little bit of a deep thinker. And so I start to talk to fellow people there and everything. And mm-hmm. there was that pause for a split moment for me that said, if I pull the trigger, round can't come back. Everything's yeah. different. And so I had that thought split second. And again, while I'm gauging, is that a target? Is it not a target? And then it just hits you in the back of the head. It's like, hey, shoot, stupid. Figure this out later. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, especially me with the machine gun. Like, my, my job is just just get, hey, don't worry about targets in the traditional sense. Your job is just, like, put bullets in this direction and just keep their heads down. And while, you know, other people find targets of opportunity and maneuver and stuff like that. How often do you find yourself during the deployment in contact after the, after the first couple? Is it routine? Yeah, I would say on average it was about once a week, and it ranged from serious gunfights to someone just taking pot shots. Um, I, I, I would say things I would consider serious gunfights maybe every – yeah, probably, probably about once a week. And then another time that week there would just be pot shots or you think you hear something or, or something like that. Did you guys sustain any casualties? Yeah, actually, okay, so this was the uh, worst part of the plan. We had uh, three guys killed in a day. It was a single single incident. Um, and kind of going back to families and being unsure how things work, something happened to where the FRG got the news ahead of time before the families were notified. And they took some proactive approach and told all the families that there were 
they said five. They were wrong with the with the count. Um, they inflated it, <laughs> which is worse. They just said five of the boys were killed, and about twenty were injured. I don't know where they got that number. We had about uh, eight other people injured, uh, ranging from uh, an amputation to a scratch from shrapnel. Um, and then the families obviously went into a complete meltdown on panic. And then we don't have cell phones or really access to computers or anything or easy access. Right. And we didn't even know this meltdown was, was happening at all. And that, that, is, that, uh, that lasted for probably about, I was, to, I was told probably about an afternoon's worth of time. Did anybody get in trouble after the fact? Uh, uh, the, uh, I, I think the leader of the FRG had to go and get replaced yeah i yeah i don't yeah the the details are 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 super murky i never i never got the full story but i i remember uh yeah like my my mother just heard hey five of the guys were killed and then just not and just not a follow-up like what does that mean is it mine we don't have names yet which that that's a that's a horrible thing for uh families to go through yeah, 100%. And, and obviously, you weren't a reporter at this point in time because you're no. bad at getting the details of this story. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, blame it on amateurism at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, those... go, going back to me being a young man. <laughs> right. What, what did the casualties do to the unit, to you? I mean, you know, is it, was there a, like a awakening where you're like, damn, uh, I, I thought this was going to be a different experience and now people are dead? Yeah. So, that's that's almost still like a weird dichotomy that I think I, I wrestle with going back to the piss and vinegar and that sort of motivated not to pitch my stuff. It sort of motivated an article I wrote recently on um, younger soldiers who haven't gotten a chance to go to combat it and, and just might completely miss out on it. Um, having this, the perspective that I did when I was younger, but at the same time, I don't know if like, there's no situation where I would change and, like not have gone or anything like that Mm -hmm. um it definitely evolved me made me a wiser person a better person in the long run um but it definitely made things uh extremely real and i still i don't i think it took me like a solid year to like really process what actually happened um it's really hard it's kind of hard to explain i still don't really know how to articulate it it's like something happening and you just go okay that happened but you don't really like your brain is almost like holding like the reality of the situation from you. And then like months after the deployment, I was like, Oh, Holy shit. That happened. You know, what, what exactly happened? Can you share it? Yeah, we were, uh, we were just doing a patrol and there was a, uh, there were two, um, well, it was one, there were two motorcycles approaching us. Um, one had an IED and one did not. Uh, we we killed the one that did not and one came at us from an angle from a crowd it was just really fast fog of war i think someone someone noticed it but there were so many people there and it was unclear if they were aiming for us and they detonated at at us you know and yeah they detonated and it followed through with uh uh two two gunmen took pop shots after that that were somewhere else so it was a a complex ambush right okay um is there any part of you looking back on it that looks at that experience and, and wishes that you had focused on it more while you were there or was it just sort of self-preservation to not even acknowledge it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, 
I mean, there's definitely different camps of people. Um, and obviously I don't blame anyone that completely like lost it in that moment or anything. There were definitely a handful of people that, uh, just really couldn't function. Um, and I totally get that. I'm not trying to say I'm a better person, but I think in terms of, if you look at it from, from like a cold calculated perspective, um, I was able to detach and long-term. I don't know if that's like, uh, a huge red flag mental health wise. Uh, but just for the function of the job, it was, it was definitely, uh, best. I, I would just say, and again, from personal experience, but talking to people mm-hmm. on the podcast at some point in time, you'll have to unpack it. Yeah. That doesn't mean that it's all going to be a, a traumatic experience and it's going to be awful, but, mm-hmm. um, it's that box in the garage that eventually, mm-hmm. whether you move, whether you just clean the garage out of habit or, yeah. um, you're looking for something, you'll go through that box. You will. It just, it'll just happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I unpacked the box, yeah, about maybe a year, year and a half later. And I spent, I basically spent most of my early 20s being like a completely like non-functional person. Like, uh, really? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, I'm, I'm drinking a glass of wine right now, but uh, I have a very different relationship with alcohol right now. Uh, but yeah, I definitely had alcoholism. Um, like way, like I'm talking show up to class at 9 a.m. with a blender bottle that's just a screwdriver. Um, like really irritable. I, I didn't have, uh, it, you know, I got angry really fast. Uh, a lot of stuff uh, a lot of other guys go through. Th- thankfully, I was like never violent or anything, but just very easily agitated, uh, way too emotional. Uh, yeah, d- uh, drank too much. Very difficult to have relationships or, or relate to anyone or anything i don't know what actually changed it um if it's just through like normal growth and adulting i uh, definitely went to therapy and the best thing actually happened to me was the department of veterans affairs licensed my dog as an emotional support animal i got i got a dog which was probably the the best thing that happened to me and uh basically it gave you know like it it, it told me i was a psycho the dog um because i would get irritated and then the dog has a toy and it's just like it gets more intense with the toy and i was like you know and i'm like motherfucker and then the dog's like you know it's like you know barking and ripping his toys up and i was like why is the dog crazy and then like that happens 30 times i was like oh it's me the dog's feeding off me i'm an i'm an insane person and then that's when i started to chill out that's impressive that's amazing i mean the dog was trained to pick up on that no, the dog was not trained at all. This was a twenty dollar okay. pit bull that oh. was about to be put down, actually, because he bit a kid in the face. Um, that was going to adopt him. Which, uh, I, I mean, he's fine. I mean, because I asked the question of like, well, what the kid do? You know, was he putting crowns in his ear? Like, what? Like, I mean, did the dog just run up? You know what I mean? Like, it, it was right. one of those things I asked, and because they were trying to talk me out of adopting the dog, um, I said, no, it's fine. I'll take him. Um, so absolutely no training at all. Cause the dog, he had, his name's Truman. He had aggressive issues too, beyond what I was projecting onto him. So like me training him to be less like food protective, less aggressive and like more cuddly helped me, you know, like, but the dog has, was not a train. It was not, it was, he was not a service animal. Um, and I remember the first time he gave me his belly, he was, it was like nine months in, I was like, holy shit. Like, I've got the dog to the point to trust me. And then I was like, this is actually working. And I did, that's when I started to piece together is like, Oh, like I'm indirectly giving myself therapy. Makes sense. Wow. Yeah. First person I've talked to 
on the podcast with an emotional support animal. So it's an interesting yeah. uh, dynamic to say the least. Yeah. Emotion, yeah. Emotional support animals aren't, aren't real. Like they're service dogs. Those they're actually trained and licensed. You can bring them on a plane and stuff and, and support right. animals is just, I mean, you, you don't have to pay like animal fees if you rent. Um, but there's, there's no license or training. It's just, honestly, most people use it as a way to just get their dogs into apartment buildings. Really. You can pay <laughs> quack, you can pay any quack online to a hundred bucks to write you up a, a, a certificate to say your peacocks an emotional support animal and you can get on. <laughs> it's a, it's a system that's been been abused for 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 sure but i would the va there's no easy access to service animals or anything like that so my my doctor was just smart because i was actually just complaining about i couldn't find an apartment that would rent out to me because i got a dog and it's a pit bull which are considered aggressive breeds for no real reason and landlords don't let you have pit bulls and then my my doctor at the va this is the cincinnati va was just smart and connected all those things at once like this guy needs an apartment and he needs his dog so let's just solve this problem with one letter with va masthead and, and everything basically started coming together right um Back to the deployment here, you talk about, you know, being in contact once a week. Is there any part of you throughout the deployment that, you know, starts to realize this is too much or I'm not going to come home if we keep up at this pace? Any of those thoughts creep into your head? That's hard. Um, I don't think so. I think I got a weird adrenaline addiction. Obviously, it's scary at the time. It's intense. There, a lot of bad things can happen, but... I didn't like when we weren't engaged, which, which is weird. I, well, I mean, there, there's the hard engagements that suck and they're bad and they're terrible and people are getting hurt. And then there's the, the guy taking some pop shots at you. No one's in any like real danger. You're undercover. And and that's the stuff that looking back on it, I think there's like an adrenaline junkie thing that can get off on that. And then there's the real firefights that are scary, but I think I was too young at the time to really think, like, think about it, like really stop. And and like the danger didn't really set. I don't remember it really setting in, even when we had uh, injuries and deaths. And that's not me being a badass or anything. I think, I think there's just like a safety mechanism in my weird, weird little brain or anything. And and nothing came together until it was over. Do you think that had you been able to acknowledge that at the time, Mm -hmm. it might not have taken you so long to unpack everything that you needed to unpack? Probably it's, it's like, it's like people I've dated where you don't realize it's terrible when it's happening. And then like three months afterwards and all your friends tell you they were crazy and you're just like, Oh, that was terrible. That was awful. I can't believe I, I did that. It's almost the same thing. Yeah, no, I, I guess that makes sense. I can't, I can't argue with like, a lot. Like you, you can't see it when, when you're there. Um, and then when we weren't, uh, we were, uh, we actually had a, uh, pretty good setups at the FOB uh, pretty about midway through the deployment where you were able to play like Xbox and stuff like that. So there is plenty of ways to kind of take your mind off things when you, when you weren't in it. How does the deployment end? Uh, super uh, anticlimactically. Um, we did our, we did like uh, our last patrol, we did the handoff to this other unit coming in. I uh, want to say it was like Tennessee guard or something. It was another guard unit. I think it was Tennessee. Um, we did the handoff. Nothing happened really. 
Um, it felt cool being like the veteran with the new guys coming in that right. were young and full of piss and vinegar. And you're just like, you're just like these jokers. And it's like, that was just me like 11 months ago. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, let me tell you about war son. And it was just like, dude, you were this exact same kid, like not long ago. And yeah. You, and you did one deployment. Let's hold, let's, let's chill a little bit. <laughs> so you get back uh, home. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously family's happy. Everybody's happy. What's the next phase for you? What's the next stage? Yeah. So you finished school yet at this point? No, I took, God, I was in school for like seven years. <laughs> Super senior. All right. Yeah. With the deployment. And then, uh, I, I dropped one semester once to go to, uh, BLC. Cause that was all who to get my promotion. Um, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, it's probably, yeah, a good six years or six, seven years or so. Um, and like I said, I had a lot of problems uh, at that time. So a lot, lot of, uh, you know, did, didn't take school very seriously. Um, yeah, I came home. Uh, mom picked me up. I don't have a large family. I had a, yeah, a girlfriend at the time that didn't make it through the the deployment. And then, uh, yeah, I lived with my mom for like a, a week or two, then got my own apartment. And then the semester started. I, I think, uh, you know, we talk about combat and like gunfights and stuff, and, and that's really cool. But I think the weirdest, like hardest part of deployment, it wasn't any specific engagement or anything like that. It was, uh, I'll never forget this. I was in a, a journalism class, actually. And this was, it was just the timing how things worked out. It was, yeah, I think it was like two, three weeks after the deployment. And I remember sitting in the class and I was like thinking, I was like, I was in a gunfight less than two months ago. And now I'm just like in this class. Yeah. And it was just weird. I was like unshowered. I was shooting a machine gun, you know, and then you go back to the fob and, and you tell your inappropriate jokes with the boys and stuff like that. Now I'm in like a college classroom. I'm clean. And just some guys telling me how to do journalism. And it was, it was, uh, that juxtaposition is, was probably the hardest part. Or the weirdest part. Did you know you wanted to do journalism? When did you find that out? Uh, yeah, I've, I have always wanted to do journalism, actually. Uh, I just didn't know where I fit um, in journalism. Uh, got, and uh, my biggest regret is I, I, got, I got a lot of good photos of my deployment. I got no video of it. Going back, I wish mm-hmm. I had like a GoPro. I just didn't think about that. Um, See, now, it, back in my day, all I had was a little digital camera that had a video function on it and I would put it on the dashboard Yeah, uh, with an SD card in it. It put it on the dashboard of the vehicle and just record us driving. Yeah. Yeah. If I knew I wanted to do like military journalism or, or like knew what was going on, I would have like documented everything to a T with like video and stuff like that. But now all I got are like maybe like 30, like cool, like cool guy photos of me holding the two forties or whatever. Right. Um, you know uh, <clears throat> so yeah, get back. Uh, was the editor of the school paper for a while, did some internships at a local Fox affiliate, the local paper, the Cincinnati Inquirer. Um, and then this takes us to 2014, 15. Uh, I get a job at Politico to come out here to DC. Um, again, go back to the young man thing. I didn't know how much money it costs to live in DC. (laughs) And, uh, Politico is a great company, but they, they were paying me $40,000 and, uh, you can't get an apartment in DC for under probably 1800. Um, and I had to go to this like tax subsidized apartment and that was, uh, maybe about $1,100. So I, I, Politico is a great company. It's just an entry level job. 
Um, and I wasn't willing to have roommates, you know, um, and you weren't willing to drive, you know, an hour to get to work every day if you were going to move north of the suburbs or anything else. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, can't. Yeah, you can't do that. So I, I worked there. I worked there for a while. That, that was my first job. And then I just I bounced around. I got an editor uh, job at the Examiner. Um, and then it clicks in my head. It finally clicks in my head like, oh, because a couple people kept telling me to like, look into writing about the military. And I just it, it didn't click until I was at the Examiner. Um because there's a lot of people that cover the military and do it really great, but the hardest part is just the jargon, the culture, stuff like that. And that stuff, uh, myself, and there's some other great reporters uh, like uh, Laporta at the AP yep. and stuff like that, that you just can't, you can't make that person. Um, and I was like, oh, that's a little niche for me. And that's, uh, yeah, I was at the Examiner for about a year. Um, and then uh, Stars and Stripes offered me a job. The paper you read downrange. I mean, what, what a thrill! Yeah, yeah, I read. Yeah, I read. Start. We didn't really have good internet, and we actually got stars and stripes like like uh, like it was Vietnam. You know, <laughs> just read read copies of that. Uh, get in there, and then that's when I started covering uh, Congress and uh, the VA. Okay, so um, two part question here. Mm-hmm. One again. Uh, with going back to cover the military and the combat experience, yeah. um, is any of you aware of what's going on under the surface with you at that point in time? And two, do you th- is any of that more difficult to cover because there may have been? Yeah, so I had, I'm not going to say I don't have problems now, but like the, the peak of issues was up until the point roughly i moved to dc and then maybe a little time after that so so around the time i get to stripes is about the time i i I get my shit together and i become a functional human being again all right so yeah then taking this job kind of uh, did you realize how much you would actually enjoy covering the military even after spending a good amount of time in it no actually like uh before that, that was my biggest hesitancy because I was like, hey, I've got, like, I, I was just like tired of it. Um, I actually wanted to go originally into like environmental reporting because I majored in uh, environmental policy in college. And I was really I'm really interested in like uh, climate change policy and stuff like that. Uh, and I just got I, I got dragged into military reporting, but I, I, I love it. Um, it. It's weird because, you know, I'm still in and uh my, my rank largely doesn't matter, but no one else in my position can just talk to the Sergeant Major of the Army or ask the Pentagon any question they want at any time right. or call any base, any Sergeant Major, uh, talking to generals. Uh, that is a weird, unique opportunity that I don't think any enlisted person has ever had. Um, and that's an opportunity I, I don't want to waste because uh, I like to write everything for the people at the company level. That's who I think about when I write about stuff. Does it does this does this story I'm writing make sense to an E4? Is kind of the question I ask myself. Right. So I think coming in with uh, that illicit perspective is just such a unique opportunity and something that I don't think a lot of it, it's hard to find that in other places. Sure. Um, I want to dive more into the journalism stuff. I just had one more 
question in relation mm-hmm. to the actual military portion of your yeah. career. Mm-hmm. So you get back, you continue to move through the ranks. Um, you're still in currently serving, as you just mentioned right now. Mm-hmm. Um, one, are you surprised you never deployed again? And two, do you, what is the, what are the rest of the, the, you know, goals for your military career? Yeah, I, I kind of am surprised I never got to deploy again. I think, uh, you know, I got to go during the Obama surge and it's largely tampered off since then. Um, I'm frank, like the combat deployments are, are kind of over. Afghanistan's over, yeah. Iraq, Syria. Uh, in between Iraq and Syria, we have about 1,200 people total between those two countries. Um, and that's about it. Uh, other than that, your Kuwaits are, do you want to go to Europe? There's Djibouti, there's Kuwait, and I'm just, I'm just not in- interested in that stuff. I think I got in, and when I started being able to deploy, it was at the basically the tail end. It was the... Uh, all must go sale at the store and and, right. and and now the uh the shelves are empty are you staying in for 20 do you think or i got to <laughs> it's uh it, it's too easy the the national guard is it's too easy it, it, they they don't ask a lot i'm i'm guaranteed it's weird because uh you know i do this journalism thing you know if i go to the Capitol or the pentagon or anything i'm in a suit it's clean I'm i'm writing for a living i'm talking to people but then randomly once a month i get to go like run around the woods with face paint on and do uh mount training it's it's this weird juxtaposition that that i love so uh with that obviously your training command knows what you do mm-hmm. uh oh yeah they know <laughs> yeah well you know similarly uh we we have sort of the same crux of uh, uh being media members who also happen to have a uh a job uh that you know well yours requires you to cover it directly i do yeah. it ancillarily um, but that said, you know, again, um, have they uh, ever called you into the office to have a conversation about your reporting? No. Uh, so, well, yes and no. So, the fact that you had to uh, pause on that answer means that some, apparently something yeah. happened. Yeah. So public affairs people uh, immediately, and I, I got to keep this vague and in, in, in in, in fairness to them, do not like me and do not like me being in. Um, and that are that those are public affairs people that are immediately adjacent to me. Um, I have really great relationships with um, people outside that circle, uh, rather it be the, the Pentagon, the National Guard Bureau is one of my best. I think they're some of the best public affairs people in the business, and I work with them a lot. Um, but there's a lot of suspicion on their level, on the state level. But once it goes beyond, that's completely fine. Um and I'll have to leave it at that. But in my immediate chain of command, um, it they they love it. Uh, they uh, my uh, platoon sergeant several times has always said he's like I never thought how cool it would be to be to have a reporter in the platoon. Uh, they they like frankly like knowing things. Like I come in, they they ask yeah. me what what's going on in the army, um, you know, and they 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 think it's really. You know, my first sergeant thinks it's really interesting. Like I talked to the sergeant major of the army a couple of weeks ago and he just thinks that's cool. And he understands a good national guard command knows how to leverage people's talents and integrate them and stuff. Yes. You're an infantryman, but what else do you do? And that is the advantage. That is an, an advantage national guard has over active duty. Cause you, you, you get in these situations where you don't, you're surprised what skills become relevant. Rather, someone's a carpenter, a cop, or a mechanic, or or whatever. Those there's weird places those skills come in. 
hundred percent on my first deployment, I had a 74 Delta, which I think is a chem NCO mm-hmm. uh, who on the side was, was a IT guy and a network guy. And he literally built an entire network for us in our house in Iraq because yeah. he had the skill set to do it. And we That's had our own internet. Yeah. He bounced it off a satellite. I think he told me in Greece or something. And we had our own internet in the house for free. Yeah, that's something you're just not going to get. And like on our COVID mission, I, I gave them, I gave uh, my chain of command, like the media briefing, like how the the pandemic is being covered by local and national outlets, numbers from Johns Hopkins, because I know how to get that stuff like quickly. Um, they were, they knew how to utilize me. And uh, on the other end of that, there's never been a situation where the army is trying to take advantage of that from uh like an ethical level, if that makes right, sense. There's, right. there's never been a, can you write this puff piece? Um, there, that is, sure. that has never happened. Um, and they, I, I will agree good. with you that, and saying it as, as a former one, state level mm-hmm. PAO, PAO suck. Mm-hmm. Those PA yeah. folks are terrible. They, they, they are, they're minions, they're sheep and mm-hmm. they suck. And, and they don't have the idea of what public affairs is supposed to be at the larger level. I think you run into some really solid professionals. Yeah, no, I, I, I've noticed the the state level PAOs generally. There are outliers that are really good. Um, I'll, I'll give a shout out to uh, Vermont has a great PAO, for example. Um, but they, yeah, I, I think it's hard for them to get it, and they, I don't because know, if it was, for a general who yeah. decides their welfare. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, and I don't understand, and I never understood. It's like, why would you have an issue with a reporter in the ranks? Because this came up during the pandemic mission, and I was just like we're feeding poor people. Like, what am I going to do? Leak to the press that we're giving oranges out to low income families. Like, well, like, what do you want? Like, is that what you're afraid of? Like, what is that? (laughs) Like, like what, what, what black ops is this? Like you, if anything, you want me to do that, you know, but that, but that never got leveraged, but yeah, the chain of command, uh, they, they really love it. They, they feel like they, uh, their perspective is, Hey, like half the army news basically comes from a guy, one of my guys. And, and that, that's exciting to them. Which I understand too. I, I agree. It is smart. However, yeah. I think I told you uh, the piece you interf- interviewed me for on the ACFT. I got a phone. Oh, call. Yeah. I got a phone call for that. You got a phone call. I got a phone call from another person <laughs> of the same rank to sit there and tell me I didn't have permission to do the interview. I turned around and said, "I don't need your permission to do the interview." What would they say when you said that? Uh, yes, you do. I said, "Okay, it's a mutual colleague in the media." He called me and asked me a question. I answered it. It wasn't an interview. And a yeah. discussion. Like, it wasn't an interview. And it's not he like you were I, commenting on something controversial. No. And, and again, and he, he said, he, he said, he asked, he's like, well, you were the only person in the article who was quoted. I go, he asked me if I could quote him. I said, yes. I said, I, I'm like, I have no problem with what I said. I'd say it to anybody out loud. I'd say it to the general's face. I stand behind everything I said and nothing I said yeah. was a lie. What do I yeah. have to worry about? Yeah, for people listening, well, I wrote a story on the ACFT, and I think you were telling me about uh, some, logistical, some logistical challenges, which is uh, getting the you, actual equipment. Yeah, and, which and, is and the time it takes to conduct one, and how a commander at a company level has to decide: Am I going to go forego four hours of training to conduct a test that doesn't get me any better in readiness? Which is a very like no shit take, you know? Like, like no, I, I'm glad you told me, but that is that is the opinion. Everyone has. No one doesn't have that. You know, like if you ask that PAO that you're like, what do you think about the ACFT? Do you think it's hard to do you think the ACFT is hard logistically on guard units? Like who who says no to that? Again, it's <laughs> the thing. And I said, look, it, it, there's no 
if I don't believe what I'm going to say enough to yeah. put my name on it, then I shouldn't say it. Period. Like, no, I, I agree. Yeah, you yeah. know, I was I'm I'm a, I'm a responsible you know adult and, and an officer in the army. Like, th- there's no reason for me to hide behind this. Some people get nervous about it. I, I don't. I didn't, I didn't say anything controversial. And oh, by the way, I would like to point out, and I think that's a slight difference. You talked a moment ago about how the first sergeant loves it, the platoon sergeant loves it. I think that's the difference between honestly the enlisted folk and and the officer side. Um, you guys love it because it's access to information that you're probably not going to get otherwise. Yeah. Right. You can feed the first sergeant information and everything, give them big picture stuff that they may never have yeah. a conversation on with commanders. I, on the other hand, as a, as a senior 05, like, you know, for me, I, now it's a threat to the rest of their power structure. Yeah. Right? And, it, and it was such a benign, like it was, it, it was so ultimately bad. such a, such a vanilla story, but it's not like you were, it's not like you were like, Hey, do you want to hear some shit about the tag? <laughs> <laughs> then i'd understand i'd be like hey man like uh i don't think you want your name in this story like i'll take it but i i'm gonna recommend against it for for yeah, your right. own sake <laughs> uh again with, with that, that's another thing with sources and, and soldiers like uh that's uh sometimes they tell me it's okay and like you always want to name in a story but like a lot of times you know i'm like you just want to avoid this headache it, because some people get mad anonymous sources and it's a, a lot of times it's like that. Like you can handle telling the PA, you know, to go pound sand, but any four, that's a lot, that's a lot more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Again, mm-hmm. and, and in your line of work, obviously you have to talk to people in uniform to get an unabashed point of view. Yeah. And, and yeah. a lot of these soldiers understand the risk that they're taking, especially now in the social media world, we, they've, mm-hmm. they've seen other people getting a lot of trouble for saying things and doing things online and they don't want to risk their career, which again, it's a fair position for them to be in. But, uh, and I will give you credit. uh, If you follow Steve on Twitter, he is always saying, Hey, I need information for a story. Somebody DM me, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. and, and people, I I assume more than, more than enough people are willing to respond to your questions. That, that perspective is so, important um any story i write assume i talk to twice as many people that that are actually quoted a lot of times i'll just talk to people if it's a story about i i don't know like maybe some weird changes to promotions right like I, i'm talking to people just on background or anonymously like hey just make sure i understand this correctly like i'm talking to people like that right um and it, it's also it's really important it sounds selfish because obviously i benefit from it but it's really important for soldiers to talk to the press yes um no reporter, including me, of any legitimacy is going to write some huge – in most cases, there's a dichotomy to this, but no one's going to take the word of just one E3 and just run wild with it in a lot of cases. But it's really important for people to talk to us because things don't get cha- – it sucks, but things do not get changed until they're in the press and, and people like uh, us. Not organization. Yeah. <laughs> I mean- or – military times until they start asking paos and sergeant sergeants major and that's not how it should be but that really is the fastest and only way to to fix things and i'll I'll give an example because i went to the press over a pay issue during the pandemic now i was in the press but i went to a different outlet um to complain that the state was a month behind on pay uh because i was pissed i was like i can afford this but i got privates that this is their income and they haven't been paid and we're not getting an answer. And I told the first sergeant, I was like, hey, I'm going to talk to a journalist about this. And he said, cool. I was like, all right, I'm just letting you know. 
Um, and I complained about it. I put my name on it and said, hey, our soldiers are getting paid. This is a backstabbing to a force that have left their jobs for this mission. And everyone, the pay got fixed in two days. Like, yeah. like that, that sucks that that's the only, and that that's the way to fix things. Uh, and I understand that people are scared to talk to the press. Um, obviously, if you, you don't have to talk to me, there's plenty of other people. Um, you can negotiate anonymity um, stuff, figure out how you want to be referenced, like an NCO and the guard, stuff like that. Um, Cause that really is the, the best people need to be held accountable in the military for, for mistakes. But uh, reporters, we can't know everything and we rely on people to come to us with uh, problems. To that end, you know, we're in really muddy times uh, yeah. when it comes to the military and the way they're covered and how they're politicized and everything else. Mm-hmm. Have you come across a scenario where, uh, those two roads intersected and, you know, your moral compass uh, was sort of uh, not working correctly in a sense that not like you were doing something wrong, mm-hmm. but just like one of those issues where it's like, I don't know if I can report on this kind of deal. You mean, uh, give me, give me like a hypothetical example of what you mean. Uh, whether it's, you know, um, you know, wrongdoing by somebody in your immediate chain of command uh, or. Oh, you know, got it. Got this it. is yeah. going to give a massive black eye to the National Guard across the board, and I'm a member of the National Guard, the oh. Ohio National Guard, whatever it may be. Oh, yeah, I don't care. I'll, I'll write an article tomorrow that sinks the National Guard. I don't care. Um, but uh, I, the only uh, separation I have is I won't report on anything that I'm close to. Um, a good example, like I was on the Capitol mission. I was there on January 6th. Like I didn't report on the Guard's role in that mission directly, if that makes sense. Um, there was a case, and that's just conflict of interest things like big level guard stuff. I'm fine with, uh, but once it gets to things I was directly involved with, I, I can't do that. Um, another good example is uh, we had a soldier in our unit that was arrested uh, pretty recently on child pornography t- charges. Obviously, that's something that happened in the army that would directly be in my jurisdiction, but I didn't write it because he was in my unit. I knew him. So anything that's really in my state or anything I touch from a military perspective, I, I'm not going to report on. Is that just a personal thing or is that somewhat of a directive somewhere? It's a, it's a personal thing. And obviously like, uh, yeah. So like, yeah, it, it's a personal thing. So uh, I, I put that own, own role myself, but I'd imagine if for some weird reason I didn't care, the, my editors would have the exact same opinion. Oh, really? I was just going to ask you if they would ever, would they ever force you, Hey, do the guys in your state, go get a quote from them. Oh right. yeah. Yeah. If they, yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're smart about that. Like I'll, I flag it to them. Like, I'll be like, hey, this is a story going on, uh, but I know this guy. He's in my unit. I can't write it. Um, another good example is, uh, let, let, let's say, uh, you know, like, uh, my state lost a rifle. Like, that's a story I'd write. Like, I wouldn't write that. So it's it's a lot of a uh, – but it, but there's, there's, wig, there's wiggle. So I say, like, I'm not going to write about missions I was involved with, but broadly, I would write about the pandemic relief stuff, even though I wasn't involved. But I wouldn't write about – my unit or state's involvement in particular, if, if that makes any sense, or I yeah. deployed, I deployed to Afghanistan. I'll write about Afghanistan, but not my unit's mission in Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, I guess I kind of hold the same maxim um, in a mm-hmm. sense where if it applies to my status, I talk in very broad terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if, if it's something about somebody else's state, I have no problem yeah. ripping it to shreds. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's a fine line. I mean, again, you know, at this point in my career, it's, you know, 
I'm over 20 years. Really, all they're going to do is send me back in with a retirement. They see <laughs> take retirement away, I guess, if it's egregious enough. But I don't think I would ever do anything egregious enough to that standpoint. But yeah, um, still, they, uh, mm-hmm. it's it's diminishing returns for me to embarrass my own organization. Right. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. no there's no win in that for anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's uh, like I, I won't use any military privileges for anything like I won't log into uh mill suite to get documents that might be helpful to me i have plenty of sources that monitor that stuff and they'll give them to me for me but i won't go to their i won't go to my army email for force-wide memos or anything like that so like no and i can't source soldiers i know from my own like military duty if that makes sense um it's gotcha. it's, it's way it's real easy if i needed to get a soldier's perspective on thing like i know a hundred of them uh but i need to find other people like people i don't know from a military perspective what's the toughest part about covering the military right now i think it's it, we we go back to i know there's a lot of issues going on and it's about finding soldiers and finding soldiers that trust you um there's so many problems going on that we don't know about and it's uh opening up that that line of communication and 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 letting yeah letting soldiers know we're we're here to shine light on whatever problem you're running into and and hold people accountable it, it's uh spreading the word that we're uh a resource for that how much do you trust the high level military and I, and i asked that sort of as a loaded question from the standpoint of you know, they have a long track record of not holding themselves accountable properly on a variety of issues. Let's just start with sexual assault and sexual harassment from the beginning. Yeah, let's yeah. start with that. Let's start with let's start with the drone strike that killed uh, civilians. And they, they told us there was a secondary explosion uh, yeah. that that could have had an ID in it. So how much do you knowing the inner workings of it? How much do you trust when you talk to Guard Bureau, you mm-hmm. talk to the secretary of defense or whoever it may be, that office off of OSD? Mm-hmm. How much do you? Um, feel like they're straight with you. This might sound, there's a difference between lying and then like coming to things with uh, being wrong with good intentions. And that's the kind of thing where the drone strike might, that might explain that. I don't know. I think everyone has good intentions and they want, if they don't want to tell you something, they're just going to tell you. Um, it's about shifting through the bull. It's 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 also about shifting through the bullshit and getting through the public affairs line that I believe that they believe is true. But I need to talk to E fours, E fives, E sixes. That's who I need. Um, so do I think they're lying. No, in a lot of cases, because if they are, that's a bigger story. Right. If they're if I catch them in a lie, like frankly, they're fucked. Um, if if I could be a little crude. No. Um, I think it's and and you talk about like something like sexual assault or losing the war in Afghanistan. The problem is the machine is so big. Yes, that's the problem. It's who's at fault. And if you fire that guy, well, you got to fire that guy. If you fire that guy, like it just it turns into a situation where okay, well, if we start putting heads on spikes for the Kabul withdrawal, does that end up being half the DoD? And then Biden just doesn't have leadership anymore. Like we're, we're so I think that's the problem. It's not necessarily like the accountability. Like it's just there's too many chefs in the kitchen. And when you like sexual, it's like uh, Fort Hood, right? What it was, I think it was like more than a dozen people that were fired. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's I mean that's great, but I don't know how far you can take that and still have yeah. Well, I yeah, remember I, Abu I Ghraib, when Abu Ghraib got adju- adjudicated, 
It was a two-star general in E4 where the people who got in trouble. Mm-hmm. There's a canyon of people in between those two individuals. Yeah. That those are the only two people who were ultimately held accountable. I mean, I know a company commander got relieved mm-hmm. and a first sergeant got relieved, but come on. At the end of the day, like, you know, the people who got in serious trouble were an E4 and a two-star general. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's uh, when I get a statement from uh, public affairs people or something like that, I, I believe that they believe it's true. My mission is, is that actually true? And does that paint an accurate picture for on the ground? It, it's the classic military thing. There, what, what does a one-star tell you versus a private? Uh, the one-star might think he's right, um, but he might not be. And, and that's where we get into uh, intentions. Um, since your title is ground combat reporter, now that we have no more ground combat left, are, are you forced to kind of change the direction of your job? <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that's that's what we would call like a beat specialty. Um right. I mean like I do a lot of other like I actually do I actually do a lot of GI bill coverage. Um that's that's like my baby. Um I and I and uh as you know I cover a lot of the ACFT, but yeah, combat is uh is definitely coming to a close. Uh but there's always going to be there's new vehicles, there's new guns. Um there's new schools and stuff like that and uh someone in my mind someone there's going to be another conflict at some point and someone oh, yeah. needs to kind of kind of be ready for that i guess um, uh, leave, leave your reporter hat on here for a minute um, okay because the the sergeant staff sergeant hat is will probably have a much different answer mm-hmm. um but in the time you've been covering the military it feels like it's changed so much oh yeah um it, 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 almost to a point where the organization to certain people says it's unrecognizable mm-hmm. um as a reporter is that expected is it fair um, have they changed too much? Because again, I know the staff sergeant gives me a different answer. Yeah. So the reporter, okay. So the reporter hat, I think the military has changed substantially. It's don't ask, you go to don't ask, don't tell that was repealed 10 years ago. Yep. It, it, it feels to me that that is a policy from the late 19th century, but that was while I was in and I still, that I, I really like can't get over how crazy that was. Like that's probably the worst social policy the military has had since segregation. Um, trans people can serve now. Uh, women can serve in combat roles. Um, women can have braids. We're thinking about uniforms that are more female friendly. Um, it's a more inclusive force. And when people hear that, I'm not talking about the uh, woke uh, diversity Olympics mm-hmm. you would see in like a college application photo. Um, it's legitimately taking like just hey who wants to be in the infantry and go fight go fight the enemy like anyone can do it that's gonna that can pass these series of events and and i think that's great and that's going to lead to a much more power, powerful military it's also changed uh how we assess soldiers uh there's a new rifle qualification that that's frankly better than the old one there, there's magazine changes different stances while targets are still popping up the acft it's a bitch to run it's a logistical nightmare, um, but it is better than the old fitness test. It, it is better at assessing your level of, of strength and cardio, um, and it is, it is changing how soldiers train. Soldiers are doing more CrossFit-style strength training workouts versus just let's go on runs and ruck marches, and that's probably going to lead to – I'd argue you don't need two miles there. at the end. One mile is fine. I you no, know, I'll agree with that. And more just from a yeah, there 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 are there's a lot of room to change it and 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 tweak it. But I think the the idea and intent is probably 
better than the old old test and we're, we're i think we're going to see some some better results so from that perspective the army has uh, radically changed and you look at social media like you you look at the the kind of issues the sergeant major of the army is super active on social media and i think it's good because he now he sees a microcosm and he sees an echo chamber but he does see things other sergeants major are also on facebook and twitter and it's easier for them to engage like Back in the day, in, in Vietnam, no E3 is sending the sergeant majors of the Army a message. That is not happening. But right. now they can. Do they? And do they do it when appropriate? No, it wasn't, didn't happen when I was commissioned. <laughs> yeah, definitely a different question of when it's appropriate, but they can do it. And they can reach people like me or Davis Winkie at Military Times or Haley Atesk and Purpose, all these talented reporters uh, going back to – this is the only way to really change things. Like it's easier to access the press. It's easier to access leadership and it's easier for the press and leadership to see the issues. Um, so I think we're in a, a radically different army and, and mostly for uh, the better. Um, I'll ask you about hashtag mill Twitter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what an interesting place to be. Uh, I will say this. Much. Am I hashtag mill Twitter? Are you hashtag mill Twitter? Are we, I don't know. Are we, are I, we I, in the club? I, I, I think we are. I, I just sort of find myself being pulled into it because I follow enough people who are, who are yeah. in it. But I, I had this conversation with a colleague, um, you know, in reference to uh, Mill Twitter. And I said, look, you know, obviously Twitter is just like a cesspool, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's never a place that you want. But I'll say this about Mill Twitter. For all the things there, Mill Twitter usually is kind of like in that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? When you pull the audience, <laughs> usually one answer is unequivocally you know, that's where Mill yeah. Twitter is. They usually get you the right answer uh, on any given topic, and the majority tends to agree yeah. on that. And I kind of feel like as much as the wackos are out there and the crazy hot takes are out there, Mill Twitter has a good sort of compass in that standpoint. Yeah, I think, uh, like, I'm glad the military has become like most other major communities. Um, there's a lot, there's, uh, examples of political candidates running campaigns based on what Twitter tells them. And it usually blows up in their face. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, that said, I, obviously I see hot takes and people being just, you know, lunatics tagging people when they shouldn't be like, I, obviously there's a dichotomy here, but I think largely it goes back to what is the, the overall take and I think it is a a good avenue for like going back to the press to keep their ear to the ground. It not the best way, but it's another way. Um, it's a good way for people like me to build sources or talk to people that are that are smart on issues. Going back to just talking to people on background, like just making sure I'm tracking the issue correctly, and for them to reach senior leaders. Now, again, it's it's it, it is an echo chamber. It's a bubble, but it's an okay tool if you view it as a supplement if you want to understand right. uh, the army like i said just a uh, mill twitter encapsulated when one reporter from msnbc tried to say the hurt locker was a good movie mill twitter corrected him on what horseshit that movie actually was so, oh god oh god what yeah that's bad what, what's your favorite military movie <laughs> um somewhere between black hawk down um yeah is probably near the top of the list we, I, again we always grade these things on accuracy right on yeah. on, on their ability to simulate um, combat. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought Lone Survivor was pretty much dog crap mm -hmm. uh, from a factual accuracy standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, I will say the outpost, uh, I know they had to condense a lot of time into a short, and we've had Rod Lurie yeah. uh, on, on the show here. 
and, and I told him as such, I, I you know, the con- put it this way. If the combat scenes make my hands start to shake and adrenaline starts to rush mm-hmm. because I, it makes me feel like I'm there again, then they're hitting the right notes. Black Hawk Down absolutely does that. I think the combat scenes in the outpost in the, for the last 90 minutes of it absolutely do that. I think from that standpoint, they hit the right notes. Um, you know, uh, what other ones are, are really good? Uh, I mean, Saving Private Ryan, yay and nay. Uh, I didn't fight in World War II, so it's a little bit different. Um, you know, I, I never had the experience of, of standing bad guys on one side, good guys on the other, and, and just shooting at each other nonstop. So it's a little bit of a different uh, mantra, but I do think some of the, the combat scenes are a little bit Hollywoodized. If that's yeah, a- I think Sam and Pride Ride's kind of kind of boring, but I, I like it for the the opening scene. Just the yeah. uh, like, just the opening scene is just such a like a like a buckle up, motherfucker. We're going to war. Scene. Yeah, exactly. like, like just no, just no mercy. Um, yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is uh, is Generation Kill because. Um, I think Generation Kill is weird to recommend to, to a civilian just because I think that shows almost it almost speaks a different language. Sure. Like it's it's such an impenetrable show. Like I tried to watch it just from like someone who doesn't know anything, and there's just so much. It's such a weirdly subtle show. Like I've probably seen it four times, and I pick up on I pick up on different storylines every time I watch it. Like weird little conflicts they have with between two side characters. It's a strange show. But I, I like it because I like uh, whenever someone's like, "Hey, what's the best thing to watch that'll give me an understanding of the military?" I was like, "Watch Generation Kill" because I feel like uh, I've had most it or similar conversations than uh, most scenes in, in that show, just because it's so just general military guys bantering with each other. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so anyway, but you know, yeah. it, it's a whole different. Uh... That, that's that basically again encapsulates mill twitter they'll, yeah. they'll set your compass straight to say the least what were you uh, saying mill, mill twitter i think it can be a force for good it's good most of the time but like every online community can can be can be bad absolutely <laughs> uh, well yeah. listen brother it's been it's been great catching up with you i've, I've yeah. enjoyed the heck out of the conversation um again follow him on twitter at steven bainon b-e-y and N O N N O N, even though it's pronounced Bain in it's N O N. So you get all the information there again, military.com is a, is a great resource for, for everything. Uh, I certainly appreciate you, you, you sharing some time with us and your story. Uh, I hope that you'll send this out to all of your followers when it's all said and done. So uh, they can get the, the, the backstory to all of your wonderful writings that we see on the web. Awesome, man. Hey, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Steve Bain. thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Thank you. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.